Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening. You are listening to Hey Human Podcast, and I really appreciate it. On this episode, number 26, I speak with uh, Mr. Nick Pellegrino, and he's a restaurateur here in Nashville and the chef at Manja, and it's a great restaurant. It's one of my faves. And he was gracious and sat down with me at his restaurant one afternoon. And we had this fabulous conversation about all the twists and turns that his life has taken. Uh, I don't want to give anything away. Um, man, what a great and interesting life he has led. And I re-listened to this episode when I was doing some edits. And I was laughing. It's He's super funny. Really great guy. I think you're going to enjoy this. At least I hope you do. And what I love most about Nick is uh, that I learned about him through our conversation is that he is what I like to call a sayer of yes. And that is he always said yes to an opportunity when it came to him. And man, I think that's such an important thing to remember, even to himself. Like even in a moment where somebody said, hey, can you do this thing? And he thought, hmm, I have no idea how to do that thing. But he said yes to himself because he believed that he could. And to me, that's just such a great example of of being a human being, of just getting out there, even in the face of fear or uh, not knowing something or whatever it is, just to take that leap. I love it. Um, I titled this episode, Sometimes Knowing Nothing is Everything. And I think that has many layers you know, it, it means don't overthink it. It means get out of your own way, you know. And sometimes when you know nothing, you're actually more qualified than the people who are supposed experts of their field. I know that sounds weird, but you'll you'll understand what I'm talking about when you listen to the episode. I hope you enjoy it. And, you know, I hope it, it gives you some inspiration or a lot of inspiration to just... Just say yes to things, not to the bad things, but, you know, to the good things. And, yeah. So, anyway, little housekeeping, heyhumanpodcast.com. I'm on Instagram, heyhumanpodcast on the Instagram. And on Facebook, also, heyhumanpodcast. And on iTunes, it's under heyhuman. And thank you guys very much for listening. I super-duper appreciate it. If you could take a few minutes and review the podcast on iTunes, rate it, all that kind of stuff. It helps a lot get it, get the, get the stuff up in the rankings. So that would be awesome if you would do that. Uh, other than that, uh, enjoy the episode. Thank you for listening. I, it means the world to me and for sharing, uh, you know, getting it out there and sharing it with your friends and family and such. I really, I really appreciate it. Enjoy. Hey! Hi, Nick Pellegrino. How are you? I am fantastic. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Do I need to speak like really loud? Yeah, you know, just talk like you. I usually don't have a problem speaking loud. Yeah, well, you're Italian. It's it's my nature. It's in my blood. I can't help myself. Yes, and also we are doing this podcast, Hey Human podcast. In case you are wondering, and you just turned on your podcast and went, "What is this?" (laughs) You're listening to Hey Human podcast, and we are. Doing the podcast from Manja, my favorite restaurant in Nashville. I eat here a lot. You do. I love this place. Yes. Because we love seeing you. I'm a celiac, and not only do they have tons and tons of awesome food for people who are not celiac and are normal and not weird like me, but everything on the menu can be made for weirdos like me, gluten free. It's amazing. (laughs) So I love this place so much. So, Nick. Yes. Hi. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to do this. You're an interesting character. I am an interesting cat, as we say. So, you are in the restaurant business. Yes. But you began your worldly adventures as a music person? Yeah. I was a musician from the time I was 14 years old. Played music professionally. Played guitar. Played bass. Sang. Did all of that, you know, most of my adult life. Yeah. And do you still do that? I still do it. You know, I, I mean, I did it, like I said, from the time I was 14. And what was your band name? Uh, my first band's name was Numbers. Numbers? Yeah. And then, um, you know, as I got older, I, I started playing in other groups. And, and 
worked a lot in New York City in Greenwich Village Is that as you're a from? bass player. I'm from Staten Island, New York. Yeah, played in a lot of bands, and then um, as I got older, and I started driving into the city more and more, and then I started landing a lot of gigs as a bass player huh. in Greenwich Village. And I, you know, worked with a couple of different bands. I worked with one band called The Singles that were, you know, kind of a, a rock band in the 80s, dating myself here. And then I guess in like 89, I was asked by a, a guitar player that I had worked with. He says, hey, you know, we're working with this girl, Wendy Wall, and she's like kind of a folky. This was when the whole Tracy Chapman thing was mm. happening. Every, every everybody lady, wanted a fast everybody car. Everybody wanted a fast car, exactly. <laughs> so everybody was looking for that artist, and he says, hey, we're, you know, we're, we're looking for this. Uh, we're, I'm working with this girl, Wendy Wall, and this all came out of the bitter end on Bleecker Street. I used to play the bitter end all the time. I was in a couple I of house bands. Yeah. Yeah. I was in two house bands at the bitter end, one with mm. a guy named Baker Lee, who was actually a sound man there for a while, and then with the singles, we would play the Bitter End every Tuesday. We did a residency there for like a year on Tuesday nights. It was great. So I, I, I bounced around Bleecker a lot, playing bass with different people. So anyway, back to the story. You know, Baker calls me up and says, hey, you know, I'm working with this girl, Wendy. And yeah. She's close to getting a record deal. That's the, the crane across the street backing that up beep, that beeping. Beep, beep. yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of construction. A lot natural. of construction going on here. She so said, hey, I'm working with this girl, and, you know, she's close to getting a record deal, and, you know, the bass player, we're not really digging him anymore, and we want to get rid of him, and, you know, um, we want you to come and audition for the band. So I'm like, yeah. He says, well, there's one catch. He says, he plays upright bass on a couple of songs. Can you play upright? And I, because I never say no to anything, I was like, Smart yeah, man. of course I can. Yeah, how old are you then? I was... I think I was 20. Okay. Yeah. At 20 years old, you knew to always say yes. That's good. Exactly. I think, Lucy, was I 20? No, I wasn't. I, I think I was 24 at the time. Okay. I should time. always say yes to opportunities, not to like creepy things. It is the opportunity. Yes. Yeah. Don't say yes to anything. Hey, get in this van. Yes. Yes. I only, you have candy? I only get in vans with candy. <laughs> only with candy. It has White. To be- Nondescript vans. It with has candy. to be good candy. I'm it's not racist. It can be a black van. Okay. Hey, cool. black vans matter. Right. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. So 24. So he he says, you know, you have to play upright, and I was like, yeah, of course I can. You know, I'll, I said I don't have one anymore. I sold mine. It I just was made good up move. just some kind of BS. I said I'll have to borrow one. He says, don't worry about it. You know, just you know, do it. He says the audition is Monday. If she likes you, we're going to rehearse. We'll have one more rehearsal, and then Wednesday night we're playing for the label at the Bitter End. Did you have neon on at the time? Because it was the 80s. <laughs> I did not have neon on at the time. Okay, I did not. I don't even think I had spandex on at the time. Oh, my God. But I did oh. own a pair of Capizios, and they were in my closet. What about vans? Did you have vans? There were no vans in the 80s. Oh. I, as far as I know, there weren't. I thought vans were an 80s thing. So I was really into the high top, you know. Uh, I'm an immortal, so every genre sort of. I was the black <laughs> black high top Chucks, Chuck nice. Taylors. I, 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 was, I was always into those you know, cool. in the those 80s. Those are timeless. They're though. pretty timeless, yeah, so I wasn't kind of stuck. Now, I'm not saying everything else I wore wasn't stuck in the 80s. So, it's all good. So, so he says, okay, well, you know, Monday night's the, the thing, and this is on Friday. So, I had a friend who played upright. I called him up. I said, man, I need a huge favor. And I knew he had a couple of basses. I said, I need to borrow one of your basses for a couple of days. He says, yeah, sure, no problem. Come get it. So I went and I got it. And, there and were this two... is New York, so you're not driving. You're like on a subway with a giant upright bass. Well, no, not yet, because this was in Staten Island, because I lived oh, in Staten okay. Island. And, and he was, uh, this is a guy I grew up with, oh, one of my okay. closest friends growing up. Neighbory kid. Yeah, yeah. So I drove down the street and I picked up okay, an upright. got it. And I brought it back to my house. There were two songs in her set that there was upright bass on. So I spent that entire weekend with a cassette, because this was the 80s, I had cassette tapes. I stood there with the cassette in my room, locked myself in there for the entire weekend, and I learned those two songs on Upright. Right. And my fingers were like raw by Monday. Because, you know, Upright, the strings are three times thicker, and, you know, spacing is different. So it was a little bit of an education, but I'm really good at woodshedding and and, and winging it and, you know, kind of learning things on the fly. So I went in on Monday to the audition, schlepped the uh, bass into the city, went to the audition... She said, well, this is, you know, played through the songs. This is great. Do you want to be in the band? I was like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so let's rehearse. We rehearsed the songs again. Went back in the next day on Tuesday, rehearsed. Wednesday night, we did a showcase for the president of the label. It was SPK Records. Oh, no pressure. Yeah, no pressure. The guy's name was Charles Koppelman. 
who was a huge publisher in, in New York City. And um, so we did the showcase, and at, after the showcase, he comes back into the dressing room and says, you know, let's make a record. So literally, like, two months later, we were in the studio recording oh my her record for SBK Records. It was really cool. And then um, the best part of it, we recorded with a guy named Rob Ferboni, who was a pretty famous engineer. He, he engineered a lot of the stuff for the band. He, he engineered the Last Waltz movie and had worked with Bob Dylan, you know, yeah. Eric Clapton, all, all these kind of people. And uh, so he was doing the record. So I was all excited, you know, to do the record. We go in, we start doing the record, and we get to the Upright song, and he's like, hey, you know, I know you're not really an Upright player. And he says, I'm going to get this guy Eddie Gomez to come in and play Upright. Eddie Gomez was like a guy, a session cat in New York that got paid like double scale to play. He was like him and a guy named Ron Carter were like the two top Upright players for sessions in New York. He says, we're going to get Eddie Gomez to come in. And he's like, dude, that's fine. Don't worry about it. I'm not insulted. He said, yeah. no, but I just wanted to let you know. Yeah. I said, don't. look, I, wanted cool. the, I want the record to be great. And, you know, I'm not, that's not my thing. You know, I could play that song, but I'm not a upright bass player. So he says, yeah, okay, cool. So so they, they they book Eddie Gomez to come and do the session. They give him double scale, which I don't even know what it was. Probably like 700 bucks for a three-hour session at the time. And and they were doing the session on a, on a weeknight. And, and I got sick. I had a really bad flu. And I had like 102 fever. Oh, my gosh. And I get a call at like 9 o'clock at night. And it's from Rob Fraboni, the producer. And he says, hey... Um, we're in here with Eddie, and he says, i got to be honest, man, this is just not happening. No he way. He says, what are you doing now? I said, well, I'm you know, kind of in bed with a fever now. I said, but uh, if you want me to come into the city and do it, I'll do it. He says, that would be great. He said, I'm what? triple yeah. scale. <laughs> no, I was, like, I was already scale. getting paid to do the record. So I was like, it wasn't like they had to dangle any more money. I was like, look, man, I'd love to... to to give it a shot he says okay well when can you get here so I said I'll be there in an hour so I drove into the city and I lived in Staten Island so Staten Island it's about nine miles from Manhattan and it can take you 20 minutes it could take you two hours it sure. with you. but it was late at night so it's I like Nashville now yeah, exactly right so, so I'll be there in an hour so I went in there and he says we got a base here for you you don't have to just come so I show up he says alright and you ready to give this a shot I said yeah great i put the headphones on my ears were like all clogged up from my from my fever and i went up, went in there and i and i did one take and he's like on the mic uh i think we got it come on in we'll learn to listen and he says uh how's it feel to bump eddie gomez off of a of oh master session i'm like are you kidding me he says no listen to it. it's great he says that he was just trying to do too much with it and you just played it real simple and that's yeah. what it needed to be. Sometimes doing nothing is everything. Nothing is everything, yeah. So I did that and, and, and that was like, you know, and then there was like this whole buzz going around Bleecker Street uh, and I'd see other players that I'd work with and they were like high-fiving me. Dude, I heard about the Eddie Gomez. Did you get more work awesome. out of that? I got some more work yeah, out of it. Then all of a sudden people were like, hey, can you, you come play upright on this gig? I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. So I started playing upright more often. Then we did, you know, we did a, a couple of tours with Wendy, and I, I did that for a while. And did and she then, take off? She, she, we, you know, we had a couple of videos on VH1. It never really took no off, way. you know. Yeah. Oh my god, totally YouTube. Yeah, you can that. YouTube it. YouTube it. You can see song? me with long Wait. hair. Okay, and Wendy. One, one video, Wendy Wall, W A L L, and uh, the one song was "Real Love" was one of the songs, and the second song was "Dig That Crazy Beat." And are you in the video? No, oh, I'm in the oh video. Oh my god. With hair down to my shoulders. Oh man. Which is really, it, you, you can't see me now, but I do not have hair no, down to my shoulders. No, you have normal, normal short hair. <laughs> I don't know if that's normal, but you have short hair. Yeah. Were you wearing the Chuck Taylors in the video? I might have. Oh, I might have been so wearing the Chuck Taylors. I can't good, wait to see that. That's a good chance. But awesome. yeah, so I had long hair and I, I was playing. Well, did you have video. like the mullet thing? or did you Oh have yeah, oh, what's the mullet, hair? baby? Oh, what's the mullet? But we didn't call it a mullet then. What'd you call it? Just hair? It was just hair. It was just hair. Just playing on hair. So I did that. I did that with Wendy for a while, and did some other records, and 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 uh, and then I had just gotten off of a tour with her, and I was going to be off for like four months. And I ran into a friend that I went to high school with, that I was really close with in high school, who was a chef. And he went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, upstate New York, which is like the number one. Sounds fancy. Yeah, the number one cooking school in the, in the country, one of the top ones in the world. And it's like it's like going to military school for chefs. It's really tough. And I ran into this guy. He says, hey, I know you love to cook, which I did. I loved cooking. 
He says, I want to learn how to play guitar. Teach me how to play guitar. I'll teach you how to be a chef. I'm like, okay, cool. So I had a couple months off. I'm like, let's do it. And um, so he'd come over to my apartment, and we'd hang out. We'd open a bottle of wine. I'd teach him, like, three Led Zeppelin songs. And then he's like, all right, let's put the jackets on. He brought a chef jacket for me. Oh, that's so cool. He says, if you're going to learn, you're going to learn how to do it the right way. And I'm going to teach you like I was taught in school. He says, and I'm going to really be a pain in the neck about this. But if I'm going to teach you, you're going to learn the right way. So it's like the two of us in our apartment, my apartment, and you know, I'm putting the jacket on. He's like, "You're not wearing the jacket." Right. Like he's yelling at me that my jacket isn't on right in the apartment. I'm like there's nobody here. Chefs he says, are intense. He's like, yeah. "It doesn't matter if anybody's here." He's yeah. like, "It doesn't matter if anybody's here. You have to have respect for yourself, respect for the jacket, respect for the job, That's or amazing. don't do this." Yeah, That's so like music. Was, Whether you're playing for one person exactly. or a thousand people, you do the you, same show. You do the same show. You put the same show on. So he was like, "You know, if you're gonna learn, learn it the right way." And then That's awesome. what happened was he started. He would do these little in home caterings for like you know 10 20 people he said, and he invited me to come on a job with him one time and we had such a blast i mean we were in there drinking with the people having wine and and we just had a lot of fun he's got his personality is a lot like mine we we're both you know you're so shy we're, we're, i'm very shy yeah quiet <laughs> morose yeah very morose very morose I mean, the in, I mean, modeling, whatever. Yeah. it's just like just crazy Depression. so we i had so much fun doing that and you know, Wendy's thing was not going to happen. You know, she wasn't going to do another record for another, you know, eight months. And I was off the road. I had nothing to do. And, and then um, I got actually was replaced in her band by somebody else. And I was like, you know what? Now I've got nothing to do. And how are you we, making money on the side? I was just doing gigs. Oh, okay. You know, I was just yeah, yeah. doing gigs. I drive into Bleecker Street. You know. Five nights a week and just play with different acts on Bleecker. You can make around. a living. As a yeah, I was making a living in, in New York, you know. Because oh. I do, you know, the way Bleecker was, you know, nobody played in the club for the whole night on Bleecker Street. You'd, you'd do your set and then there'd be five other people behind you. Yeah. So I'd schedule my night. I might do three or four sets just with run different around, people. Just, yeah. yeah, because everything's on the same street. So I'd, awesome. I'd, get, I'd park my car, get out with my base and my, my rig. And what a time to be in New York. It was an awesome time to be in New York City. Except for the rats. For music. Except the for rats. the rats, yeah. yeah. But uh, I mean, if you could deal with the rats, we didn't have a pizza rat then, which is unfortunate. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I was making a living playing music. And you know, I started doing this thing with my buddy, cooking, and I was having so much fun doing it. He says, you know what? We should open a place. I'm like, wait. I said, but what about music? He says, well, you got to make a choice. you got to decide what you want to do. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I should. Let, let's try it. So we opened up this little uh, gourmet shop on Staten Island, and we were doing caterings, and we had a little takeout business going. And, Italian, and, I assume. No, it wasn't, oh. it wasn't Italian. It, you know, because although he was Italian, he was not an, you know, air quotes, Italian chef. He was just a chef who happened to be Italian. Are you an air quotes Italian chef? Or I, are you a I chef am, chef? I would say, uh, well, I'm a chef chef, but I mean, my strength is mostly in Italian. Air quotes food. Italian. Yeah, air quotes Italian. <laughs> exactly. Can I air quote? Air, air quote, quote that. Air quote me. <laughs> I'll air quote you on that. So we did that. You know, we did that for a couple of years, and, and then um, then I met my wife. My wife came into the place, and she was a pharmaceutical rep, and she needed catering for her doctors. And, um, you mean to say, hey, here's some snackers and would you yeah, buy well, some drugs? She, exactly. Yeah, cool. You know, I'm going to feed you guys. Yeah, sure. Here, write some prescriptions sure. of these drugs right, that right, I right, sell. Right. She was a drug pusher. Yeah, it was so, pre-donut. It was pre-donuts, yeah, exactly. So I would do some caterings for her. And then she comes in one day and she sees there's a guitar in, in the place. And she's uh, like, oh, you play guitar? I play guitar too. And I said, oh, how cool. Play me something. I give her the guitar. And she's like. Were you already smitten me? Oh, I was. You were gone already. I was gone the moment she walked in the door. I was done. In fact, I I was on the phone with my partner, and she walked in, and I said, "I have to hang up." My future wife just walked in, and I hung up the phone. So Italian of you. It was very Italian of me. (laughs) It was very confident, maybe overly confident. But so, so I was like, "Oh, you see, play?" And she's like, "Yeah, I play a little guitar." And she played a little guitar. So I said, "Play me something." I give her the guitar, and she's like, kind of fumbling her way through like over the hills and far away and I'm like wow it's really good she goes now you play something for me and I play I, I start I have a degree in classical guitar oh, and she Lord. was like she turned red she was like I'm so embarrassed how could how could you let me do that <laughs> how could you embarrass me like that I said no I'm not trying to embarrass you and then then she started you know she's like why are you here why are you cooking why aren't you playing and, and writing songs and everything and and then I played her some of the songs I had written. She's like, you, you're crazy. 
you have to do something with this. So I, that that was she was the reason why I got back into music again. Ah. And I started writing again, and I, I did a recording, and and I started, as your own artist, as myself, yeah, my own artist, yeah, my mm-hmm. own thing. In air quotes, of course. In air quotes, absolutely. That was the name of the album, Air Quotes. Air Quotes, my own artist thing. (laughs) (laughs) So I I did this session. Did you keep cooking while... Yes, I was still cooking. I guess you're not... Are you supposed to say cooking or chefing? When you get to a certain level, are you... cooking. You can't call a chef a cook. Ruby Amanfu told me that, that she said you can't call a chef a cook. You can't call a cook a chef. Yes. At that time, I was still just a cook. I would never have called myself a chef at that point in my life. And so, so she heard this stuff, and she's like, "You got to do something with this." So I went in and made a demo of some songs, and then I started bringing it around to the people that I know in New York. Yeah. And they're like, "Wow, this is really good, but you should really think about going to Nashville." I'm like, "But I'm not a country artist." And they were like, "You should really listen to what's going on down there, Chris. It's very, you know, it was like, you know, Steve Earle was happening. Well, yeah. I love it. You know, guys like that that were making those kind of records. Yeah, good old days. Yeah, when the they call it, I think they called it the Great Artist Scare of 1994, when the, all those guys were getting signed. You know, MCA was signing really cool artists, and so it was like you should go to Nashville. So I went back and I, and I told Janine, my, who was just my girlfriend at the time, I was like, hey, you know, everybody likes this stuff, and they're like, you should go to Nashville. She's like, well, let's go to Nashville. Come on, we'll drive down in my car. She had this company car. She's like, we'll drive down. We just let's just She's do it. She's the best girlfriend the ever. Best girlfriend ever. Oh best girlfriend ever. Let's go. So we like two weeks later, we got in her car and drove down here. And I, I bet your road snacks are to die for. They would become pretty good road snacks. Yeah, pretty good road snacks. <laughs> no smart food on your watch. Yeah, and she actually <laughs> got me an appointment with Capitol Records through a friend of hers, which was crazy. Oh my God. Yeah, so I'm just like this Italian guy from New York trying to you know pitch myself as a country artist. I love it. Which now in hindsight was just insane. Yeah, whatever. Like Nick Pellegrino, yeah. Yeah, all this next one from a little guy out of from New York City. New York, Texas. New York, Texas way, Nick Pellegrino. <laughs> so I, she she actually got me an appointment with somebody at Capitol Records, and I went in and played my stuff. And, and she was, the girl at Capitol was really sweet, and she was like, yeah, it's really good. She says, but I don't. I just can't see you being an artist here. She says, but your songs are really good. You know, you should go and and talk to some publishers. So, uh, you know, being like the New Yorker, I'm like, well, do, give me a name of a publisher. Tell me some publishers. She actually gave me the name of like three different publishers oh, and helped me set up appointments with them. And then she said, you should really go. Are you affiliated with ASCAP or BMI or Seaside? I'm like, no. So she turned me on to a friend of hers at ASCAP, a woman named Pat Rolf, who was just like my guardian angel when Aww. I moved here yeah. and I, I called Pat Roth I got in the car and called Pat Roth and I said hey you know I, I there were no cell phones yet we didn't have a cell phone you were just out I your window yelling phone. yeah I was just yelling out the window <laughs> so I called her up and I said hey you know I told her who I was and so and so you were in a pay phone you. he said pay phone yeah. I love it she said well so come much. what are you doing now come over and see me so she's just like, I've, I've got nothing going on right now. Come over and see me. I went in and met with Pat, and she's like, Nick, your stuff's really good. She said, but it'd be a lot better if you lived here. She's like, I'm going to set you up a couple of meetings. And she set me up a few meetings, and I met with, like, probably four publishers within that first two days that I was in town. And they all said, hey, you know, your stuff is really good, but you should move here. Classic so, Nashville. Classic Nashville. So I got in the car, and I told Janine, and she was like, you need to move. I was like, I'm like, well, what about you? What about us? She's like, you move, I'll follow you. She said, you know, come down here, just live here, and 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 we'll figure it out. Yeah. So I came down. She's a like, very wise woman. Very wise woman. woman. Or I've crazy. I've not yet met your wife yet. Yeah, she's yeah. just. I know she's she's celiac too. She right? has celiac. So I yeah. love her already. Yeah, she's the reason why you love us. I know. <laughs> so we moved. One of I, I moved down to Nashville, and 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 when I got here, didn't have a job. So I got a job at, with Tomcats Catering. I met him, uh, Tom Morales, through a friend of mutual friend, and he says, "Well, why don't you come work for us?" So I, you know, they hired me. Started working backstage at Starwood, working for, oh, cooking for the acts that came through. Yeah. yeah. And then I then he made me the the chef on the Broadway dinner train, which was like this train that used to leave from downtown. Did like this whole dinner thing, and it was perfect for me as a songwriter because it was only three days a week. It was like the ultimate gig. And I did that for two years. Then I got my first song cut. What'd you get? I got a song cut by Shelley Wright, a song called Alligator Purse, which was really cool. And Diane left CSAC, started her own publishing company, and I was her only writer, which was really great. 
and Diane knew everybody in town, so I was like, hey, this is awesome. That's awesome. So I got that cut with Shelly Wright, and then all of a sudden all my songs were getting put on hold, and the, the wisest thing that everybody, anybody said to me was, baby, you can't buy groceries with a hold. <laughs> Because I was like, oh, my God, this is I'm gonna it. I'm, gonna, I'm quitting yeah. my job. And so, you know, the cool thing was then all of a sudden Shelly cuts this song and she was on Polydor at the time. And it was like, it's going to be the first single. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. My first cut's going to be a single. And, and they went as far as actually there were still jukeboxes at the time. They were they printed up 45s of the song. Oh, I said, I have one hanging in my office at home. And literally a week before it got mailed to radio, they changed their mind <gasps> and went with another song. No! Yeah. Classic Nashville. Classic Nashville. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And then like, oh, it's going to be the second single. Shelly, wrong. Yeah, it wasn't her. She I wanted know. it to be yeah. single. It's not, it's never the There artist. was a guy named Harold Shedd that was running the, the label at the time. And, and, you know, Harold Shedd, you know, discovered Alabama. He was a pretty big deal here in Nashville for a long time. And he State was a, or the band? The band. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important for my listeners so to... For your listeners to understand. Specifics. Exactly. But he was, you know, he was a pretty powerful guy in Nashville. And, and he was like all on board with this song. And then at the last minute, he got cold feet. It's like, it's too ah. different. Because it was kind of a different song, you know, for radio at the time. Do you remember any of the lyric? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, you Let's know, it's all about the lady. We, we kind of based it on that song, Call for the Doctor, Call for the Nurse, Call for the Lady with the Alligator Purse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was kind of the yeah, chorus yeah. of the song. Uh-huh. And then we wrote the whole song about it, and it was all about this magical woman who had this alligator purse. And at the end of the song, the the, the payoff at the end of the song, is, uh, it, it's, it's no secret, it's love that I use. I just carry this bag because it matches my shoes. Oh, it's so <laughs> great. Because she thought everybody thought like this woman with the alligator purse had all the secrets to life and love in the purse, and she goes, "It's no secret. Love is the magic of the universe. Oh, I love it. Take it from the lady with the alligator purse. I love it. And everybody like it was. There was such a buzz in Nashville about the song at the time. We'd go and play it at the Bluebird, and you know I was playing the Bluebird on Saturday nights. And I was only here for like a year. And That's I was like, insane. oh my God, this is crazy. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Except never, it does, because it did for you. It did for me, because I wound, wound up with a group of, of writers that were all kind of happening. Yeah. And so, you know, I was I was really fortunate. Yeah. And they'd take me in and say, oh, we got this new guy. And, and it was cool. And I was writing with this one girl. We probably wrote 100 songs together. Yeah. And so we we, we had Alligator Purse. Never, came, never wound up being a single. Was it on the record, though? It was on the record. Oh, yeah, cool. it made the record. Didn't, awesome. didn't become a single. And then, you know, that was the first session that I ever did in Nashville. And so when we went in to do the demo, I produced the demo. And that demo, they cut Alligator Purse. And then a song on the same session called Ten Pound Heart was cut by Shelly on her next record. And then a girl on Atlantic named Myla Mason cut the same song. And, Look at you. Yeah, and so I was like, "This, this is going to be easy." <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so I was like, "Yeah, dun, 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 right? like my, you know, it's cool because my uh, my wife Janine is Syrian, and she she said this expression one time, and I'm like, "What does that mean?" And she says it means you have like the heart of a cow, like like a ten pound heart. You have so much love in your heart. You have a heavy heart." And I was like, "Oh my God, this is a song I wrote down, ten pound heart." And I came into a writing session with it, and and. Um, I wrote that song with the same girl I wrote Alligator Purse with and a girl named Kenya Walker and, and she's like, baby, that's a great hook. Let's write it. And we wrote it and it, we, all those those were like the two first songs I wrote with her. Amazing. And they both got cut. Great. And it was great and we were like, this is going to be awesome. We just keep writing together and we wrote kind of quirky songs that weren't like your normal songs. I so like there's quirky. Kind of, yeah. There's kind of a buzz in Nashville about these songs that we were writing for a while and we were playing the Bluebird and getting all this attention and then, you know, so I was doing all these demos for, you know, for my publisher. And she was writing for Hay Street at the time, which was Don Schlitz's company. Sure. And, um... One of our biggest songwriters of all yeah, time. Yeah, of all time. Just a, a great, incredible songwriter. I think he's had 35 number one songs. I mean, it's insane. 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 And, um... He a billion, to, I think, is He used right. to do this thing on, uh, <laughs> on Mondays at the Bluebird called Don for a Dollar. Yeah, I, I don't know if that. you were here, but we I think I remember that. that. And I remember going to those things when I first moved here. And it was a Monday night, and you'd pay... No, 
maybe was it Monday? No, because the Blue Bloods did Mondays. Tuesday night, I think, was Don for a Dollar. And you paid a buck, and you sat there, and you watched this master songwriter just think, oh, what am I going to play now? And then he played The Gambler. Yeah. Like, oh, okay. And it's then, crazy. you know, and then, then he played, you know, When You Say Nothing At All. I'm like, oh, my God. This is insane. Yeah. And what an inspiration. And then I started writing with this girl that wrote for his company. So I would, I was, like, seeing Don Schlitz. Like, hey, Don. He's like, hey, man, how you doing? Great song. And like, oh, my God. Don Schlitz just said I wrote a great song. Oh, my God. I'm like doing somersaults running out of there. So anyway, to, to fast forward all that, then I started producing demos for other writers at ah. Hay Street. Yeah. And then I started producing demos for BMG and a couple other publishers, demos for Curb. And, and my publisher at the time, she's like, you should think about producing. And I'm like, I never thought about that. You know, when you're, when you're in a band and you're making recordings you just go in there's no producer yeah. I didn't know what, who, what, what even the producer does yeah. and, and so I, then I started producing things doing a lot where of where was your girlfriend at this point she was still in she, New York okay. and then you know after I got my song cut I went and bought an engagement ring uh, went back there and we got song. engaged the first song cut yeah because we were both convinced yeah, yeah. this is it say, we're going to put with your house shopping uh, we'd drive through Belmede I like that one so do I and it was that kind of a thing and um so we got engaged in about, I lived here f- for about almost a full year by myself, and then she moved here, uh-huh. and we lived here together for another six months, and then we got married here, yeah. and so it was, it was great, you know, that's how we wound up in Nashville, and then I did that, you know, I started producing demos, and then I would, you know, I kept writing, writing with artists, and... And you're producing? Producing, I started writing with a guy from Texas named Walt Wilkins. Oh, wow. And, and uh, wrote a bunch also of stuff with Walt. Also a killer writer. Yeah, I wrote a song with Walt called Our Lady of the Avenue. Uh, Walt's girlfriend at the time, his wife now, Tina, used to work in a bar on 16th Avenue called Sammy B's. And he came to me one day with this idea, he's like, man, these guys, they come into this bar like they're going to church. I said, well, what's the name of the church? She says, Our Lady of the Avenue. I said, okay, you picked the right Catholic to write that with. So we wrote this song called Our Lady of the Avenue, and it was on a record that I actually put out on a label that I was running at the time. And it became like a, a big song in Texas. And so I wound up with, I think, two cuts on that first record with Walt, and then a cut on every other one of his records, like three records following and now he's got a band called the Mysticieros in Texas, and they're pretty big down there. And they've put one of my songs that I wrote with him on probably two out of the four records that they've made. That's insane. Yeah, so my songs are getting played in Texas, which is really cool. Because I, mean, I, I really dig that stuff. Yeah. I, mean, that's, I love that, that style of writing. Is that real mailbox money, as they call it? No, it just, not really. No, not really. But it's pretty awesome cred. It's awesome cred, you know, because, I mean, he's like, you know, pretty revered in Texas oh, as, a, as a big time writer yeah. and Walt and I wrote probably 75 songs together a bunch of stuff and we had a band here in Nashville the Walt Wilkins band for about 10 years I was the bass player in the band and I'm the one who said I said you know because I was writing with Walt and I was like man why don't we have a band I said I'll play bass let's just get and we and wound up the band was me playing bass Billy Block was the drummer uh, uh, maybe rest in peace yeah and uh, a guy named Rick Plant was the guitar player Mike Daly, who plays with Hank Jr. and Travis Tritt, was the steel yeah, the player. Super band. It was a great band, yeah. And again, Tim Lorsch played fiddle. And we played in Nashville for almost ten years. We did a residency at the at the Sutler for like two summers on Monday nights. The old Sutler, not the yeah. new Sutler. And so, you know, we had this band for ten years, and we wrote. And then Walt moved to Texas, and you know, we haven't written together since, but we're still brothers, and you know. So that was, you know, that was a lot of fun doing that stuff. Oh, and no mailbox money, though. No, yeah, I get, I get a little a bit story. of money from Our Lady of the Avenue. They play that quite a bit in Texas still. I'm going to have to listen to that one, too. Yeah, and they, they play that quite a bit, bit in Texas. And, and then, um, believe it or not, the, the most mailbox money that I get is from an EP that I did myself here, probably in 2007 or 2009. I called it Little Nicky. And it was all songs that I wrote by myself. I played mostly everything on it, uh, except the drums and bass on a couple of songs. And and then uh, and I just you know I started doing gigs in town for myself again. And this was a rock band. This wasn't yeah. me trying to be country anymore. Right. So all of the songs on that EP, the six songs on the EP, 
every single one of those songs has gotten television placements. Oh my gosh. Yeah, which is crazy because that, you know. And there are little things like there's a show called Flipping Out on Bravo that I've got uh, quite a few songs on. Uh, say how yes do, to the dress. How do you get them on the show? I put I, I when I made the record, I gave it to a company called Jingle Punks in New York. And Jingle Punks basically is a source library for television. Yeah. And it was a great deal because you know you keep your publishing, they get the uh, the master use license, they get that, which is usually a couple hundred bucks, yeah. and then you get all their you know their the performance royalties, and they basically have a service where you go in there and say it's okay. I love Matchbox 20. I want a Matchbox 20 song, but I don't have 100 grand to license it. So here's four bands that sound like Matchbox 20. Sure. And so they put me in all these different categories, and I was fortunate enough that they picked just about every song from that EP that I made. Yeah, so that was really cool. And then I I started singing jingles here in Nashville, which I always wanted to do in New York, and never could get into that game in New York because it's so... Oh, locked up. There's like three guys in New York that yeah. sing everything. Yeah. And uh, so I was singing background on a session here for, for a co-writer and the engineer in the session was like, man, you're just really good at this. Did you ever think about singing jingles? I'm like, yeah, I've always wanted to sing jingles. He says, well, I, you know, I work for this jingle company here and he says, I'll, I'll give you a call if something comes up that I think you're right for. And about three months later, I'm, I'm eating dinner and we were married at the time we were eating dinner in the house and you're and still got, married at the time still married at the time at this time right now <laughs> we had gotten married by that that's what I should have said and stop me if I'm blabbering too no much. I just, love this this is incredible because you don't know all this stuff about me you anything. just know the guy who makes the, the gluten free bread that you love that I love <laughs> it makes me happy so I um, I got a call at dinner time and it's from this engineer and um uh, it's name was John Mills. He did a lot of stuff. He engineered Philadelphia Freedom for Elton John. He was like, kind of, there was a point when John Mills was a pretty happening engineer in the pop world. He says, "Man, I'm I'm doing this um, demo for a commercial, and you know what are you doing? It pays fifty bucks." He says, "But if it gets picked up, you'll get union scale for it, and it's getting pitched for a national thing." He says, "You know, can you come down and sing it?" I'm like, "Yeah, sure." I'm like literally, I got in the car, drove to a studio on Berry Hill. And I sang, I spent like two hours in the studio. It was like, he says, we, we, we're doing this Beach Boys thing vibe for this. It's called Brummel and Brown Fruit Spreads. And it's like, it's nothing like, like nothing like I'm under the sun. And you got to do all the harmonies. And I'm like, yeah, I could totally do that. So I did it. I stacked all the Beach Boy harmonies. I did the, th- the thing. Sounded really cool. And he says, all right, man, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with it. A year later. I get a call from him and says, hey, remember that thing you did, that demo? It got picked up for national television spot and they're going to use the demo. I'm like, no, stop it. He said, yeah. A year. A year later. year later. Classic Nashville. Classic Nashville. <laughs> I've forgotten about it. I'm like, okay, great, whatever. <laughs> so then um, it was a national TV spot and man, I made a bunch of money from doing that. Heck and a, yeah, and the did. best part was I got free health insurance for three years. Because of the because of the union. after because yeah. if you make a certain amount of money yeah. through after they pay your health insurance oh my gosh. and it was good insurance too yeah. it was really awesome insurance hey unions so like, man oh Stop. yeah and then I said I just start I took that pretty much that that a tape of that song and I started going to every other place in town that did jingles and then I started doing jingles here. Do you I'm, still do that? I, if, if people call me to do it, I'll do it. So, what a I sang all of the life you're having. I sang it's all crazy. of the crowd chants. I got called in uh, from one guy. He says, man, I know you can make yourself sound like a bunch of different guys. He says, I'm doing this thing <laughs> for Madden. I'm actually multiple personalities. Multiple disorder. personalities, yeah. <laughs> he says, I, I heard you were in an ACDC cover band. I said, yeah. He says, so you can sing that stuff? I said, oh, totally. I could totally sing this up. Bon he Scott says, now. Bon Scott Brian, and Brian Johnson. This is the Brian Johnson one. Yeah. I, I, I mostly sang a lot of the Bon Scott stuff. And I didn't do a lot of the Brian Johnson, but I did, we did some of it. So it was like, I'm doing this thing for uh, the Madden, EA Sports oh, yeah. Madden. And they don't have the money to get the real recordings, so they want to do re-records of um, You Shook Me All Night yeah. and uh, Enter Sandman by Metallica. He says, why don't you come in and sing them? It pays like 350 bucks. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Man. So I went and I said, I sang this sound alike, and it sounded, I mean, they nailed it. Wow. And I sang it, and it's like, it sounds just like 
like the, the records, which is really cool. So then they wound up not using it because they, they couldn't even afford the publishing on it. So they said they're not going to use it. But they want to do all the crowd chants. You know, like when you, like We Will Rock You in the stadium and uh, Zombie Nation and all this crowd. He says, come in and do that. Hmm. And I went in and I did that with a, the guy who plays drums for Rascal Flatts, this guy Jim Riley. And the two of us sat there and we did all these crowd chants. And they're still in the game now. That is incredible. Madden game. So it's when so you hear cool. the crowd doing We Will Rock You, that's me. Oh, my God. And my my nephews at the time in New York, I told them that. I was they like, thought that was the coolest thing ever. This is the coolest ever. thing I've ever done. I'm like, you don't understand. I've been on television. I've been on the road. Like, Uncle Nicholas, this is unbelievable. <laughs> so cool. So then, yeah, so I did, I did demos. So when did it. you... So my God, it's already like seven people's lives smushed. It's a lot of life. Yeah, it's a lot of life. Well, you know, I was—I've always been a hustler. You know, yeah, did whatever I had to do. Yeah, you have to. And you had to say yes. You had to be like. I never said no to anything. Yeah, I really didn't. And and that was, you know, it's—I've been very fortunate that not saying no to anything has worked out in my favor most of the time. And. and you're then and now wife as well saying yeah, yes to you exactly. and being a champion for you clearly which oh, is I, incredible I mean talk about you know I wouldn't without be here fear, I wouldn't be anywhere yeah. or anything without because I think a lot of people would be oh no you can't go do this thing naturally you'll be away from me for a year and I don't want that for our relationship yeah. and she's like go go we'll figure it out that yeah. is that's not well, there were days when she probably rethought it. Yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> maybe I should put a little more thought into that. But you know what? It's, it's it's been it's been it's been the best and it's been the worst. But that's the nature of that's being an artistic mind. Yeah. You know, oh, you get you're gonna have to deal with the times when you want to kill yourself because nothing's happening, and then you've got to really kind of stay level-headed when stuff really does start happening. Yeah, and you, you, you gotta really work your ass off. You do. And even when people are like, here, you're good, do this, you still have to work. You can't yeah. ever rest on, on laurels no, at all. No, not at all. You, gotta you don't really get many laurels in the life you anyway, don't. for you don't. sure. So how did you transition into this? Masha? Well, you know what, I mean, I'd, I'd done the whole writing thing, been through three different publishing deals. I wrote for Reba McIntyre's company for a little while. I wrote for another company called uh, Brumley Music. The family that uh, Albany Brumley wrote yeah. I'll Fly Away. Yeah, exactly. They had a publishing company here, and, yeah. and I wrote for them for a while. And, you know, it's just, I, I always tell people I have hit songs in drawers all over town. So, you know, nothing was really, really happening. I mean, I was making a living as a songwriter just on, you know, album cuts on records that nobody bought and publishing draws. And, you know, after a while, if you don't get the single, it's like, okay, great. You, in the meantime, you've got hundreds of songs that are done. Now, what's going to happen with them? And, you know, you know this as a songwriter. You've got to hustle those songs yourself or else nobody's going to care about them. You're, 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 the, you're the best person to toot your own horn. You know, if you, if you, nobody, nobody handles your business like you. No, of course That's not. That's definitely it's, true in any does, business. It doesn't mean as much to anybody as it means to you. Right. So, you know, I kept, did the whole writing thing, and then I got into producing stuff and produced some records for people and, and then got into working at labels, worked at a couple of labels in town, and then I was, from there, transitioned into managing artists, which I did not enjoy, <laughs> but it was paying my bills. And about five years ago, I was managing two different artists. I managed a group called The Graskals, who were a pretty oh, popular bluegrass awesome. group. And a, and a country artist, Sammy Kershaw. Another great artist. Yeah. Great artists. And that's where it ended. Because they drove me crazy. Uh, yeah. You know? It was just... Hurting cats. Yeah. It was, and, it, and it was babysitting and, and babysitting people and, and helping people make money that just didn't really appreciate what you were doing. And I was not passionate about it because I was not being appreciated. And I just had this idea because I had cooked. You gotta respect the family. You gotta respect the family. If you don't respect the family, you have nothing. You have to respect. It's all about respect. <laughs> That's fun. Yeah, you guys can't see is Susan had an imaginary cat on her lap. I was petting. Then she's petting the imaginary cat. I'll tell you a funny thing about that cat in that scene. Yeah. Iconic scene from yeah. The Godfather. Yeah. Um, the cat just wandered onto the set. Shut it. Yeah. And uh, Marlon Brando picked it up, just put it on his lap, and made it part of the scene. Brilliant. Well, that, Brilliant. He 
He's a right? method guy. Method guy. Just made it part yeah. of the scene. They nail it. And, and Francis Ford Coppola, they were like, do you want us to cut? And he was like, no, no, no. Keep going. Keep yeah. going. Keep going. And it's like iconic. Totally you know? iconic. And I love that stuff. Yeah. So, you know, I was, I was not passionate about the things that I was doing, but I had to do them to pay my bills. Yeah. And I didn't want to be that person because I know 90% of the people I know in my life are those people. And they're not happy. You know? I mean, it's like, oh, well, why do you do this? Well, it's a means to an end. I was like, well, whose end? Yeah, your end, buddy. <laughs> the end it's going to be you. your end. Yeah. So I had this idea to do just like a, a big meal, like a dinner club kind of thing. And I, I didn't want to have a restaurant because everybody's like, oh, you're such a great cook. You should open a restaurant. And I was like, no, I don't want to have a restaurant. And so um, I just had this idea to do like a big dinner where there was music and, and singing and, and Italian food and nobody ordered. You just brought food out. I Years ago in the 80s, I went to this place in Brooklyn called Two Toms. And it was a place just like that. And every night there would be a line outside. You didn't know what you were going to eat. There was these two guys named Tom that married two sisters that were amazing Also Italian named Tom. <laughs> also named Tom. <laughs> and the two Toms would run the front of the house and the sisters would cook in the back. And you'd sit at picnic tables inside this place, and, and they would just bring food out. It was cool. Yeah. And I thought, wow, what a great idea. So I kind of took a little bit of that, a little bit of the movie Big Night, which was like, for me, anybody who loves food should see that movie. And just If you don't love food, you fall in love with food after you see it. And then all of the, just the, the family meals that I had growing up, you know, my grandmother's house with 100 people sitting around a table and a, you know, table that's only meant to hold 20 people right. and just yelling and passing food and singing and the music and everything and so I, I said you know this, I want to try this and I you know at that point my wife was like okay another crazy idea that's not going to happen because you know but she supported me she's like good just try it and I, you know what just go for it I don't care we'll yeah. see what happens so I had a friend that owned a little meet three out in Franklin that was closed on Saturday nights and I just told him the idea he says well you know we're closed so just try it here and we tried it, and you know, the first thing I did before I even knew what I was going to serve is I programmed the music, because that's the, just the way that I think. Music is such a big part of everything that I do, sure. and I really feel like it's a, a huge part of a dinner. Yeah. When you eat dinner, the music is so important. Yeah. And people don't understand that; they don't get it. But if there was dinner and there was no music, then there would be something missed. They would and notice something was when missing. The, when, when I go into a restaurant and the music is overbearing, yeah. it's weird. It's like your brain can't handle all can't, of that. Can't it can't it. be in so many places at no, once so no, when no. you're eating. You want to taste the food and yeah. you don't want to be bombarded. And plus you want to talk. And, yes. And yeah. we were, were, you know, my, my wife and I went to a restaurant. I was closed one Saturday night. And I went to this new restaurant that had just opened. It was kind of happening. And I walked in there, and they've got all these beautiful waiters and waitresses with the, you know, the cool-looking shirts on. And the music is blasting. And I was like, this is like Abercrombie & Fitch with food. Yeah, it's This is not enjoyable. Yeah. So, uh, so the first thing I did was I, I knew it was going to take three hours to serve all this food, so I programmed three hours' worth of music. And it made sense from the moment you walked in. It was really kind of subdued, and then it... It built up to this climax of the meal when you got the main course, and then after the main course, it just kind of eased back down to the point where it was like really mellow when people were saying goodnight to each other. It was like perfect. Out and yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was perfect. So we tried it, and we tried it for about twenty of our friends, and um, just to kind of see if if it was even worth pursuing. And our friends were like, "You guys, you got to do this. This is so cool. I've Nobody's done it. doing it. It's this. so good." Yeah, well, that's where I first met you out yeah. there. And um, so uh, we decided, let, let's just do it. And so I started the Facebook page. Yeah. And I fortunately... I think that's how I learned of it the first time. Maybe, yeah. yeah. I had, you know... And I, I remember so calling and being like, oh, I'm a celiac, there's really nothing there to eat. And you're like, oh, contraire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because my wife had just been diagnosed right then, five, five years ago. So I was like, you know, I have to really consider this because, you know, your wife can't eat there. What are you going to do? So I, I... Get a girlfriend. Get okay. a girlfriend. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding, honey. Just There's kidding. no girlfriends ever. So um, what, was, what was I saying? So I, I, I started, started a Facebook page. Yeah. But you know what? The thing is, you know, at that point I'd been in Nashville for 15 years. I knew everybody. I knew everybody. Yeah, that helps. And a lot of people in the music business. 
And, you know, the first night I had all these producers there. Cheryl Crow was there the first night. This is after the 20 when I decided. Yeah. I just put a thing out. We're open for business. I basically sent out a letter to everybody that I had in my contact list. Yeah. Like pleading, hey, I'm doing something new. We'd love for you to be there. It's $35 a person. $5 if you want to bring wine in. Yeah. Which was like crazy cheap at the time. But I'm like, just get people in the door and I can worry about making money. And that first night, we had about 50 people there. Like I said, Cheryl was there that night. Did Bunch you do everything that you do? Like the music and that? Did I did. The, the music was there. I only We only sang one song. We sang that Frankie Valley, Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. Because yeah. when I had the idea to do this, I had this vision in my head of, of a restaurant, people singing that song yeah. all together in and Like, I love you, baby. Yeah. And that, I was like, this is the coolest thing. i got to do this. And then when it happened that night... And like here I am, I'm like oh, all these people, and then like Cheryl Crow is singing it with me. I'm like, this is awesome. Oh my God. And they, the, everybody was like gushing that night. It's like you got to do this. I said, well, we're open for business. So that was Saturday night, and I put the phone number up on online, and everybody there had the phone number. And you know, it's the it's the classic you know situation as a musician where your first gig, all your friends are going to come to your first gig. But what about the second and the third gig? You know, if you suck, <laughs> nobody's going to come back. Right. You know, you've had the mercy crowd yeah. for one time. Right. So I'm like, I don't, you know, I hope, how are people going to find out about this? And like the next day, Sunday, my phone starts ringing. I went and got one of those Google Voice numbers, which was free. And the next day, my phone's ringing. And every time it rang, I'd run, pick up the phone. I'm on Janashua, can I help you? And literally by Wednesday, the next Saturday night, was sold out. 50 yeah. more people. Yeah. And then... And no joke, within three weeks, every Saturday night was sold out for a month and a half. Yes. Just word of mouth. I'm like, oh my God, this is this is ridiculous. And then we started adding seats, and we got it up to 70 people, and that was all the people you could fit in there. And it was just taken off, and Facebook, and, and just word of mouth, and no advertising. We didn't have money to advertise. I mean, it was... Tummies we, across the land. Tummies across the land. We're, we're advertising we're, we're for you. Advertising for me. Yeah. And then it just it just took off, and the place next door went out of business. We knocked the wall down, added more seats, wound up having 100 people a night. And did that for five, a little over five years at that location. Yeah. And, and I went twice at that location. You went twice, yeah. Yeah. And I remember how excited you were when I brought oh. over gluten-free food. You were like, oh my God, this was, is amazing. I was so happy. I know. I was so happy. Because I knew what it was like, especially in the beginning when yeah. Janine was first diagnosed. It was really hard it's to go hard. out to eat. Yeah, it's so a bummer. I, yeah, it's a bummer. It is because yeah. you see everybody else eating uh, this stuff. And, and I like, missed bread. I miss. I mean, you don't really do the bread thing, but you, but you do now. Yeah. But then I don't think you were. I wasn't doing it then. Yeah. I and I remember you it. gave a warning to everyone in the room. Anyway, you said, "Don't fill up on bread." I always said, "Don't because fill up on bread." Because we're talking more food than a human body. Can. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it was, a, it's, it's a lot insane. of food. It's, it's so a lot good. of food, and it's three and hours it's long. Dancing and there's music and it's just. Well, you you know, get to be friends with that because it's fam- family styles. So you're sitting around with all yeah. these people, and you come with your friends, whatever. But at the end of the night, you're friends with the entire room. And that's the greatest thing. The thing that I never expected, never could have dreamed of in a million years, the way it would bring people together. I mean, that's the, that really is the essence of being Italian, is to bringing everybody together over a meal. Mm. I never do business with anybody until I have a meal with them. I never have. Because you learn a lot about people when you sit down and you have a meal with them. You learn if they're a slob. <laughs> but I really feel like that you, you have to share that experience with people to get to know someone. Because you're, you know, you're, you're kind of forced into a situation where you have to let your guard down. And you find out a lot yeah, about people. Yeah, because not... You don't look pretty when you're eating. No, That's nobody looks pretty it. when they're eating. <laughs> and you nobody. shouldn't look pretty because you should be enjoy, enjoying it. You, nobody looks Saucy pretty... Nobody lo- looks pretty eating spaghetti. No. Nobody. I don't care how good you think you are with it. Nobody looks pretty good. <laughs> but that was one of the, the, the coolest things about doing what, what we did was that it brought all these people together that might normally never certainly sit down at the same table and share a meal because you were you were passing these big platters of food and you were singing and drinking and dancing it was like it was, it was like a big love fest it's Italian world peace it's man. Italian world peace everything can you be can solved with a dish of pasta <laughs> exactly and now you're here uh, and now I'm here in, 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 in Nashville in, itself not yeah. Franklin yeah so we you know we did that for five years and then about 
a year and a half ago, I decided, you know, it's time for me to, to do my own thing. Because I had just kind of burnt out doing it in that space. And it yeah. was, I could only... I've, I had grown as much as I could grow. Sure. And I wanted to make this more than just a weekend thing. So I said, you know, I'm going to look for a place in Nashville. Not too far downtown, because I didn't want to lose the people that... Yeah. lived in Franklin and Brentwood so I find, let me find something in the middle and it took me a year and a half to find this place yeah I looked at so many other places can I know. tell you so I yeah. work out uh, at the little place just down the uh-huh. you know in the yeah. same little strip yeah yeah, yeah the, whatever it's called or whatever it's called get fit anytime get something fit. like that yes. get fit anytime get fit anytime try yeah. them yes <laughs> and one day I didn't know that this was going I didn't know what was happening right, and, right. And, uh, and I walked to my car and I, I looked up, and the sign was being painted, and I was like, no. <laughs> I was so, I can't even tell you, I called like 10 people. I was so excited. I was That's like, awesome. oh my God. That's awesome. Because I realized that it wasn't going to just be a weekend thing, that I could oh, wander yeah. in here by day. Yeah. And eat a lunch that would be insanely good. And it, your food, you are so... Watch the water's going towards your oh, computer there. that's you not good. That your food is so, so, so very good. Thank you for not... We don't want to be electrocuted. No, we don't be electrocuted. That'd be the second time I've been electrocuted today. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'm on three. <laughs> yeah, so we, yeah, we, we still do the Friday and Saturday night feast here. Yeah. And but then during the, but down, during the week, I wanted it to be something a little different. Because I was... And, and just one thing I didn't mention, I was the first person to do a pop-up dinner in Nashville. Really? I didn't know what a pop-up was. Yeah. And this was five years ago. Nobody was doing pop-ups here. Yeah. And then some, one of my friends said, he, he was trying to describe it to somebody, and he says, yeah, Nick does a pop-up. I'm like, what is that? He says, well, it's when chefs go into somebody else's space, and they pop up for a, a little period of time, and then they take off. Yeah. Well, I, I had more of a stay-up, because I was... In the same the kind of man I love. That's the kind of man I like, yeah. Pop up and stay up. Pop up and stay up. Five years. You should definitely Go call to a, a doctor. doctor. You should definitely call a doctor. Four hours. This guy's for five years. Go, go call a doctor. Call a doctor. See for, a medical profession. For God's sake. I know Absolutely. he's Italian, but, but good Jesus, Lord. Jesus, that's insane. So when I decided to do this, I said, you know what? I don't want to do a normal Italian restaurant. I want to do something that nobody's done here before. So I, I went to Italy last year and, and spent two weeks in Italy really kind of researching what I wanted this to be. And I decided that I'm going to make it a traditional Italian focaccia. I'm not necessarily going to serve pasta during the week. It's all going to be based off this focaccia recipe. And that's where I, you know, I discovered the, the car, black carbon bread in Italy. Mm-hmm. And then I so came back and figured out how to make it, which was... A labor of love, to say the least, and and then I started really working on the gluten-free bread because I wanted this menu. You know, when you when you would come to the weekend thing on the, uh, on on the Friday and Saturday nights, I tried to keep most of the menu gluten-free just to make it easier for us and make it easy on people too, so they could have everything just about. But it wasn't everything, and I had not been making gluten-free focaccia. So I really worked on perfecting that. Thank and, you. And yeah. You nailed it. Thank you, everybody. I mean, it's just... Uh, people tell me that's the best gluten-free bread they've ever had. It's, and that's it's like a ridiculous. huge compliment. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, because again, I know what it's like. And I think that was the advantage that I had, maybe more than some other chefs, because I had first-hand experience of living with someone who has celiac disease and eating gluten-free and tasting all the stuff that's out there and, and the majority of it is really not good mm. it's getting better it is it's but five years better. ago there was it was very very limited so I wanted everything to be you know very traditional Italian I set the place up like a traditional place would be in Rome or, or Venice you know the patio then I decided to put a bocce ball court outside and that's exciting for me because you know I love just hanging out I've never played it I need to come play you need to you come have play. to give me a lesson it's a lot of fun so you know that's this is the first focaccia in, in Nashville. And it's incredible. Thank you, you. have You have done your ancestors proud. I, I am very proud of it. Yeah. Very proud of it. I do. I'm curious. How did you, where do you, when's the moment where you go from being guy who cooks to chef? Is that like a degree? Or well, is it... and, and that's, that's, that's the thing too. You know, when I first started doing the pop-up thing, I was very hesitant to call myself a chef. And then after I was doing it for a while, you know, I, I, I called my friend who trained me. And I was like, man, should I even, am, am, 
am I qualified to call myself a chef? I mean, is this something that I can do? Or am I just a cook? He says, you're running a restaurant. He says, these are your recipes. You're running the restaurant. You're running the show. You're a chef. And then I even, I saw, I saw somebody ask Tom Colicchio, who's just one of my heroes, just as a chef, just great things, who was also a CIA graduate. I saw somebody ask him on Twitter. CIA? CIA, yeah, Culinary Institute of America. He's a CIA graduate. He's one of the few that got out. And somebody posed the same question to him. They're like, well, who, you know, at what point do you, you know, I'm, I have a restaurant, you know, I run the kitchen, can I call myself a chef? I didn't go to culinary school. He says, being a chef has nothing to do with culinary school. You're running a restaurant, they're your recipes, you're a chef. He said exactly verbatim what my buddy in uh-huh. L.A. said. That's so like, like telling a musician they're not a musician if they can't read music, right? Yeah, which is a lie. Yeah. You know. Tell it to Jimi Hendrix. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, I, he says you should be proud and confident to call yourself a chef. And, you know, I, I'm, I've only I gotten concur. better. I've only gotten better, you know, doing this. And, you know, I trained. It's not like I had no experience when I started this. I mean, I worked, you know, in a lot of kitchens in Nashville before I was, I thought to open my own thing. So it wasn't like I came into this, like, you know, just some guy who makes spaghetti sauce at home and says, yeah, let's open a restaurant, you know? <laughs> They're like, this is spaghetti A little more experience <laughs> went into it. Yeah, it's spaghetti goes. A little more experience went into it. You know, I had a catering business in New York, so, you know, I'd, by the time I opened this place, I had 20 years experience cooking. So... You know, this I think is that's the, chef worthy. I, I, I'd like to think so. Yes. I'd like to think so. And, and I'm, I'm confident to call myself a chef now. And yeah. I put myself up against other chefs yeah. who call themselves chefs and probably shouldn't. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. Well, Chef Nick, you are amazing. I Thank love you. your restaurant. I love your Thank food. You. I love you. You're super cool dude and thank you for being on thank you for having me i feel very human today yay (laughs) everybody eat some yummy italian come to manja in nashville and get full yum